episode 147, an interview with historian Dr. Hilary Seveny. Dr. Seveny and I began corresponding about a year ago, while she was deep in the throes of doctoral dissertation preparation. Having handed in and passed the thesis defence phases, she set aside time to discuss the focus of her doctoral research, Richard Evelyn Bird, with me. It would be rude and presumptuous to ask someone to reiterate their thesis to save me having to think of meaningful questions. But seeing as I am rude and presumptuous, that's pretty much what I did. The questions you hear in the interview were added post by ChatGPT, coordinating with a speaking spell, talking into a Teddy Ruxpin, down a phone line comprising two jam tins and some string, thereby constituting a slight improvement in sound quality and coherence of thought over that which I usually provide. Here's Dr. Sebony. Ice Coffee listeners, how you came to be studying Richard Bird for your doctoral thesis? So I guess it's kind of a roundabout thing. Um, when I started, uh, when, I, when I did my master's thesis, it was on um, humanitarian relief for World War II, and it was totally nothing to do with any of this. And I, um, I at the same time, I was doing my grad assistantship in a World War II archive owned by Florida State University's history department. We got donated these photos um, from an ornithologist named Oliver Austin. And uh, Dr. Austin had been the wildlife policy advisor for the uh, for the uh, American occupation of Japan. And um, he had these wonderful Kodachrome slides of uh, you know, like Japanese countryside and some of the only known uh, color photographs of the current emperor as a child. And it was a really cool collection, but it uh, also came with a set of these photographs that Austin had taken on Operation Deep Freeze, uh, where he was an observer uh, for the Air Force. And uh, he wasn't uh, he wasn't technically assigned with part of the Navy forces. And um he took these really interesting photographs of the Antarctic wildlife and the machinery and bird, and um, there really wasn't much interest in keeping them at the archive, but I've always been like interested in the polar regions and polar history, even though it wasn't what I was writing about. And I thought they were so cool, and I didn't recognize that it was Richard Bird and the Victors at first. And um, then I realized later what I was looking at, and I was like, this is so <laughs> you know, such an odd thing and so interesting. And it turned into a seminar paper uh, for a class that I was taking uh, with Dr. Ron Dole. And, uh, and it was on polar history. And so I, and that ended up turning into the dissertation. So I ended up really far afield from where I started, but it was a fun ride. Sorry if that was too wordy. <laughs> no, it's, it's great. I tend to um, just revel when people have a a good answer to a question and all of it goes in. I don't, don't edit things down because that's what I wanted to hear from you. And it's fascinating to me. And the people, the sort of people that listen to my series tend to have the same tastes as I do in regards information. Uh, so the more people bring to the table, the happier I tend to be about it and the, the happier the listeners tend to be about it. Having said all that, I will have, I will have cut this bladder. <laughs> I'll cut myself out as much as possible. Um, it's the first podcast interview, so I like never want to like, you know. <laughs> We're, I'm a historian. I'm not exactly like media savvy. 
Well, I'm not media, so that's going to work out well. <laughs> so could you, could you give the title and a brief overview of what became your doctoral thesis, please? Yeah, so um, the title ended up being The Southern Empire, Richard Evelyn Byrd and the American Antarctic. And um, I was something I like the first thing that has that kind of struck me as I was looking at the materials that I gathered for this project was that Byrd seemed to be like much more imperialist in his outlook than we give him credit for i mean like that's obviously there but we we like to say like oh like he gave us the antarctic treaty system and all of this and you know he wrote alone and it it kind of represents this uh new internationalist vision of his that's different from the earlier like more militant like colonialist strategies and that's not really what i found and then i i, I guess the title got a little punny in a <laughs> corny kind of way but like he really was like in many ways trying to replicate uh, certain social structures and uh, codes of behavior from the south and particularly like the antebellum south in uh, these little America towns and in like the community of American Antarcticans that uh, he, he kind of helped foster and uh, it, it was a really interesting dynamic to see play out because it's not the typical polar explorer thing with um, where we consider it a straightforwardly like, you know, <laughs> uh, aggressively imperialist project. It's a little more like subtle than that, I guess, or it's a it's it's kind of approached in a not just a uniquely American way of imperialism, but a u uniquely like U.S. South centric way of, of viewing imperialism in the Antarctic. That word antebellum, I've heard for a long time, and I've only just put it together that it means before the war. Yes. <laughs> yes. And so like, uh, the Civil War, while having nothing, the American Civil War, while having nothing to do with uh, anything that we're, you know, talking about in Antarctica as such, is a, a huge factor in the way that Byrd sees himself, he sees his family, he sees his lineage, um, and he is part of this uh, generation uh, of, of Southerners that's trying to, like, kind of push forward the new south as uh famous american historian c van woodward called it like it's it's it was the idea that you could move past the civil war and not necessarily like all of the things <laughs> that are wrapped up with that like the racial politics are still very regressive and um but the the idea that that Southerners were competing again in like the broader American economy, participating in the broader national dialogue. And he was very much a product of this time, a product of his family's uh, kind of diehard commitment to the Confederacy in the Civil War. They were one of the first uh, slaveholding families in Virginia when it was first uh, colonized. And uh, this was all extremely important to him in a way that isn't clear at first, just looking at, at his activities in Antarctica. The thesis 
in its early chapters mentioned a couple of concepts that I'd not heard articulated before. Geography fabulous and geography militant. Can you map those for the listeners, please? Yeah, um, I love that book. Uh, so there, there's uh, um, a Felix Driver, uh, historical geographer, had this book in the 90s, uh, Geography Militant, and he got the title from this article that Joseph Conrad, like Heart of Darkness, Joseph Conrad wrote in, in National Geographic. And uh, it was... Uh, the idea that geography fabulous, like this kind of medieval speculation about places that Europeans hadn't seen, um, you know, in the case of Antarctica, the idea that it might be like a tropical paradise or something, you know, anything that's like uh, for these kind of pre-modern like uh, notions grounded not in reality um, of, of the world and like. Uh, he sees that as giving way to the area of geography militant, which he, which is like really exemplified by, uh, Captain Cook. And it's the idea that like, you're looking to close up the blank spaces on the map and, um, you're, it's like driven by empiricism and these, uh, this production of scientific knowledge, uh, all wrapped up with these kind of imperial geographic, like explorations and like the the narratives and the cultures that come out of this and like how how the public engages with them and for conrad it's like kind of an emotional distinction like he sees this era of geography militant and like this romanticized search for the blank spaces as being like it, it ends abruptly in 1890 when uh, Stanley and Livingston meet up and he sees that as like a cheap newspaper stunt in his opinion. And he calls that the era of geography triumphant. And he sees exploration coming after that point as, as kind of uh, he, it's tinged by this kind of sadness about like the shrinking of the world and uh sensationalism and stuff like that like of course it's a really generous view of <laughs> what was actually happening during the era of geography militant but it's an interesting distinction in the way like uh felix driver sees it as as like these kind of cultural geographies that are created that kind of persist today the way that you know as kids you imagine the world like the far off places on earth to be How did Antarctica come to feature prominently in representations of masculinity and how did this perception change as improving technology made Victorian era, Victorian era models of manliness redundant? Yeah, this is something that I'm super interested in. And um, there, there's this, you know, idea that's like, especially prevalent in the Victorian era and like polar exploration that it's it's the like triumph of like masculine ruggedness and adventure over these kind of like passive feminized blank spaces and like in places like the Arctic it, and everywhere else like that that colonial projects were undertaken it's messy because there's there's people there and and it's it's has all of these other terrible terrible like side on effects in antarctica like it was less obvious that that these things had 
had negative repercussions because you don't see people being affected by it. And so uh, it kind of gives these uh, imperially aligned like explorers a way to to like express this masculinity, express their independence in this like triumph over nature. But once you have technology making those things easier, it kind of challenges that idea that you're <laughs> doing something like especially dangerous. In the case of Peary, like Michael Robinson talks about how he is ends up like trying to assign masculine ideals to his steamships, like so that he can, you know, make it that way. And in the case of Richard Byrd, like the airplane functions in a similar way. Like um you you have you have to make it kind of depends on like a heroic perception of the aviator in in culture in order for that to work because otherwise you're just using your airplane to do the tough work for you and this like really <laughs> you know exaggerated view of masculinity in the background of expeditions you've often got clements markham versus everyone that isn't clements markham and then <laughs> later on Rockefeller versus uh, Rockefeller and Ford versus Hearst, and they're sort of competing in the background to to have Antarctic narratives play out to their benefit. Can you think of any present day players that are, are filling those roles now? Well, I mean, <laughs> I guess it's interesting to consider that, like, I feel like this this might sound different than I'm, and it's kind of an issue that like other historians have brought up is that like for at least people in the humanities or people writing like about Antarctica, we kind of necessarily depend on like the scientific structures for access to that. So I think personally, I see that there's kind of a, a reflection in the historiography in the way that like it, it, it is pretty like, history of science focused and um in the u.s especially i mean like it, it's it's and i i i love that stuff and i think that it's it's a a really like i love the the like thematic considerations like going into especially environmental history but i there's so much else going on like you don't think of a u.s like social history in antarctica as much as you do like the history of exploration and uh science and technology and like i'm getting away from but it, it's it, because the humanities kind of have to like find a way to get in through the sciences i think that does like affect those sorts of things and there's always kind of like a little bit of chip on the shoulder sometimes among us and I'm guilty of it too. Like, you know, the sciences are where more money goes for research funding and all of that stuff. And, uh, I would say that's like the, like a really big like equivalent to that. And it, there's also all of the new considerations, like for like the scientific community in Antarctica where, you know, the past several decades, like they've been dealing with problems of sexism and like these issues affecting the workforce, like actually in the field in Antarctica. I feel like I've gone really far afield on this answer. <laughs> and um, I think it's interesting going back to like Ford and, and Rockefeller. Um, 
it's it's interesting too to see where Richard Bird is able in so many ways to push other people around. Um, it's it's interesting to see like where he like hits his limits, like what he what he can't budge on. And um Rockefeller the Rockefeller Foundation, like in fact, is one of these people that he tries to go after at one point and um over a book that they're publishing and he can't win that fight. <laughs> and um you know, there there's you also see a lot less of, of Edsel Ford after Bird in the thirties has these like kind of flirtations with people like Thomas Watson at IBM and you know, who turn out to be like big anti Semites and like Nazi sympathizers later and, and, and Bird is is aware, I think, of of, of how that looks. And um yeah, it, he has these people that he like of course all explorers like have to answer to to somebody who's funding them except if you're like lincoln ellsworth maybe but bird bird has his <laughs> he can't go too far with them you mentioned lincoln ellsworth and just i i've never met anyone independently wealthy to the point that they can just decide to do whatever they want, um, Elon Musk style. <laughs> and I think Ellsworth must have really terrified Bird with the capacity <laughs> to stick his oar in and achieve firsts that he saw as belonging to himself. It and must that, have really bothered him. <laughs> it, well, it echoes, and you, you recognise this in your thesis, that... Um, it offended Bird in the way that Amundsen and Shackleton offended Scott. That sort of Victorian era sense that this is my patch. Yes. And for Bird, it like kind of goes even a little bit like it, it kind of ties back into this weird stuff with, with his his family in the in the South. And like uh, a huge part of of kind of like the social structures of like antebellum Virginia and the plantation system in this kind of like weird landed gentry almost in the, in, in the plantation holders is really like solidified and brought about by Bird's ancestor, William Bird II. And like, it sounds like a stretch, but it's almost not because he talks about this guy all the time. <laughs> and he, he, uh, he wants to emulate him and, uh, and this guy was one of the wealthiest men in Virginia, and he's able to just kind of go out and do whatever he wants. And he's one of the first kind of wilderness writers to talk about, like, rom use, like, romanticism in his writing. And he's a really influential figure in early America, like, for kind of different reasons than he is today. <laughs> and... um this society he sets up like leaves his family in a position of extreme social influence that like really is kind of a model for families like the Washingtons and the Jeffersons and the Lees later. Like this is not, um, this is not out of, out of character for like the state of <laughs> Virginia. Like, like this is, this is how they're, they've been set up to run. And it's kind of this, I, and, and, a historian named Anthony Parent has identified these things with William Byrd as like, 
establishing this sense of like divinely ordained patriarchalism in Virginia and the idea that like these families that were placed in charge in the earliest days of this colony should still be the ones in charge today because like God willed it to be so and um, they're going to like take care of their people and like they're making the right decisions and it's not up to you to question them and so like everything about Lincoln Ellsworth, <laughs> like, you know, going back to him, like everything about him is, is kind of antithetical to how Bird thought, like he should run things in Antarctica. <laughs> Why did people work so hard to protect Bird's legacy? And in particular, um, Paul Seipel and Richard III, his son, uh, put such effort into protecting Richard Evelyn Bird's reputation. And I can't fathom why. Is it, is it, is it again, going back to that Virginian, um, I didn't mean to cut you off. I had a little audio glitch, but yes, okay. it, it goes back to, to this, this old Southern notion of, of honor and patriarchy. Like um, it, there's, there a good portion of the like formulation of this, like old South sense of honor uh, came from like the idea that you were not only like defending your own honor, but that of your family or like people like who you consider to be in your family, like th those close to you and uh, revenge is a big part of that it's um bertram wyatt brown who's a historian of the old south like he he wrote this enormous book about southern honor and it's it's it goes into kind of the cultural factors it created and there's been a lot of other like scholarship since then on it but like the the idea that like your personal um your personal reputation your personal honor is tied up in like how you how you get like revenge on your enemies how you defend those people close to you from like stuff like that and the opinions of other people uh like the way that you're perceived or talked about in public is is a huge part of whether a person's considered honorable or not and um it's it is considered honorable to kind of like for in this cultural setting to like ferociously go after the people that you think may have may have wronged you or your family and they you know in the antebellum south like you can see that in dueling culture and the idea that you're literally going to challenge somebody <laughs> to like crystals at dawn over over a perceived slight and it could be really perceived like a lot of it is really intuitive and it's like I see this like you know you might be assigning malign motions to me so like I challenge you to a duel it goes like from <laughs> zero to a hundred really fast and um I, I, and and Paul Seipel and and his son are, are participating in that like he he's kind of like brought them into this inner circle and gift giving is also a part of this um it's the idea that if you're the big man in charge like you're 
you're obligated to like provide things to your subordinates or whatever and they should be really grateful for them and 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 everything about like what what his son sees is this like unfair revenge on <laughs> on the part of uh burnt balkan it is is it sounds insane because kind of is but like it's also not in the context it's it's not it's not totally out of pocket or like it's something that's peculiar to the bird family it's it's really tied up in in this like cultural milieu of the old south that, that his family honors so like vigorously it's really it's really important to them that just it makes such a disjunct against so much of his behavior in his Antarctic expedition is things like the Loyal Legion and the drunkenness that he engaged in. He just seems like such a train wreck of a, a human being that to, to <laughs> turn it on its head and say, no, my honor is offended. Like what honor? <laughs> um, so is honor in that Virginian antebellum mode strictly about public perception? It's not about who you are as a person. It's about how you're perceived. Yeah, to a degree, and and at least like especially for for a family as as prominent as this, like I mean they it's it's also the idea that like you could you could also like have uh, you have like a different birth like a, a, as a as a social elite in this like kind of patriarchal setting and. You see that like play out with the William Byrd Diaries and the Rockefeller Foundation and like uh, the the fact that Douglas Southall Freeman, the like in the U.S. <laughs> the um, this man was the historian that was like the father of like lost cause ide like historiography, like the idea that like there's some sort of like. Uh, it's this romantic vision of like the confederate cause and the the confederate fighting forces and robert e lee plays a big role in this and it's the idea that you know there is this gentlemanly romantic south that uh had its reasons for doing what it did and even though like maybe it wasn't all great like it, it's and, and it comes out, like, in the Lost Cause comes out in really violent ways in, like, the Reconstruction era in the 20th century and things like the KKK. And in the case of, of Richard Byrd, you have this stuff where he's not... He's not, like, outwardly, like, a segregationist. Like, his brother, who literally leads, like the political fight against desegregation of schools in the United States. <laughs> and it's, you know, he's one of the triggers of like the Dixiecrat party breaking off. And like, he's, his brother is like a really, like one of the most vile white supremacists of the 20th century. And he never goes like as far as all that. Like, you know, you say like, he seems to have been a pretty good husband, like a good friend of the people that didn't cross him, you know, all of these things, but but the public perception matters more. <laughs> and the the William Byrd diaries when Douglas Southall Freeman like 
starts writing the Rockefeller Foundation and saying, hey, we hear that you've, like, funded the research to publish William Byrd's diaries. Like, can we talk about this, like, off the record? Like, we have some concerns here. And the Rockefeller Foundation president tells somebody about it later that it's upset the ancestor worshippers in Virginia. And Byrd is predictably furious. Like... And these diaries, um, the one in the one volume in particular that upset him so much, details like this har- these horrible descriptions of rape and abuse against enslaved people at Westover at his plantation, and and the the reviews the the contemporary reviews from the forties they're like oh we hear that some of this stuff was blocked because he's like. You know, he has too many romantic liaisons. They really, they really dress it up. And it's clear that Bird was both offended by, like, the notion that somebody would, like, step into his family's personal business like this. And he's also, like, really, really, like, I think he's deeply embarrassed by it. And so he he gets furious and tries to, like, stop this research and the publication of this research. But, again, you can't. Even if you're you're Richard Bird, you can't fight the Rockefellers or the Rockefeller Foundation's money, and and you know that's a good thing here. Like it, it's, but it it plays out really similarly to like the same stuff that they use against Burnt Balkan, like his, what his because the the Burnt Balkan book is they attempt to publish it in '59 after after uh, Bird dies and. Um, his son is still doing this. His son sees this as just as much of a slight against him as it would have been against his now dead father in the same way that like Richard Byrd really sees like any sort of like perceived attack on William Byrd II as like an attack on himself and his family. And, you know, I don't know that there's any other way that you could turn out, I guess, if you're, you grew up like playing in the attic with a, trunk full of confederate money that your grandfather traded the family fortune for but like (laughs) it's it's uh it's it's remarkably similar to how these these issues of of dueling and and honor played out in the antebellum south that's an incredible perspective to bring to the iced coffee narrative because that's something that i'd i'd missed in my reading, I sort of knew that he'd been from a Virginian family of prominence, but I didn't realize how much that had wound up his clockwork. (laughs) Do you think the expeditions he led would have played out the same under any other person of that heritage? Or was there some unique aspect to Bird that made him that particular character at that time? Was he, was he a narcissist as much as I, think he was or a megalomaniac or was he just a, a southern <laughs> gentleman of fallen, fallen family <laughs> I, I didn't think it had to be um mutually exclusive but yeah <laughs> and you know so much of it too like the other half of it to me or the other portion of this like in my in my view is robert scott like um there just as much as William Byrd is important to him, so is Robert Scott. He kind of provides like the the mirror image of that because he does want want desperately to be seen as kind of 
this more elite tradition of explorer. Like, you would say, well, maybe he wanted to be more like Peary, and he really didn't look to emulate uh, American explorers, Uh, not Peary, not even somebody like Elisha Kent Kane, who might have been, you know, because he was considered to be more gentlemanly and all of this stuff uh, he's he doesn't really play into bird's imagination in the same way that scott does um i really like it's something that really catches me and you see why it fits right like the the language about gallant gentlemen and <laughs> it, it it works for him and and it, the the formulation at least for a time why has that honor petered out? Why isn't Richard V coming after me and you for writing about their family business? Hey, they might. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I honestly don't. I, I don't know. That's a good question. Um, uh, at least in the, the case of of his son, he, he seems to have been even a little bit more unstable than his father was. Um, and I, you know, I don't want to, I don't really know too much about them today. I'd be, I have thought about it before. Like, Oh my God, what if they, (laughs) what if they see this and just, just hate me? But like, I, you know, it's, it's what I found. And it was, it was interesting to, to kind of see it play out because you see, in the letters of people like Finn, Ronnie, um, and Burnt Balkan, especially, like, there's more that the stuff that they have collected at the National Archives of the United States and the Polar Gift collections, it's, you feel that something else is there, that there's other stuff that maybe they said, or they wrote to somebody else about, or, like, it's, it's not all there. And, and you can see how that how that kind of like vendetta against them almost still kind of plays out. And if I hadn't just randomly decided to uh, look up Finn Ronnie's, uh, the status of his current, his and his wife's current like archival material, where else would it be? Like I found uh, a link to a website, their daughter, Karen Ronnie runs and I contacted her and, she gave me access to all of their papers um and i it was an incredible incredible resource um and and i feel like that kind of uh i wouldn't have seen i wouldn't have seen that turn out like that if if there hadn't been such an obvious attempt to suppress it almost you know? <laughs> like it, it felt like there's stuff missing and he's so angry at Finn Ronnie all the time um like in a way that like you see how how Balkan like you know with the North Pole flight controversy like why that might be obvious but it, it didn't seem obvious to me at all like why he should be so bothered by the existence of Finn Ronnie until like I got further into it <laughs> well that leads to the question um how did Edith Ronnie become written out of the narrative as much as has happened so like there's the obvious like scientific reasons for behind 
renaming Edith Ronnie land and, and reassessing like the extent of the ice shelf and stuff. But there's also like, I noticed that the significance of Edith, Ron of Edith Ronnie is really kind of limited to like, ah, oh, and here's the first, here's the first lady to overwinter on the Antarctic continent. And there's so much more going on there than that. And, um, I, like from a from a historian's perspective, it's interesting that you know you kind of remove the name you remove the name of the woman from the map who kind of challenges this Lady Jane Franklin idea of what women should be doing while their husbands are exploring, <laughs> and exactly how you're supposed to like fulfill that role as you know, the female wife or relative of a polar explorer. And uh, that's despite there being like no obvious like issue there in the same way that people love to talk about Kathleen Scott. Um, both of them kind of occupy this role that doesn't fit with what the established parameters were for women to participate in this. Um, you know, Jackie Ronnie by like actually going there and Kathleen Scott by not behaving in the way that you know we expect of upstanding Edwardian women <laughs> and uh it's it's interesting the way they they both in otherwise like aunt, uh you know kind of the historiography that can reassess heroism and whatever doesn't often like extend that to everybody involved. Right. Um, Kathleen Scott seems like a kind of unpleasant, per really unpleasant person, but why is it that like <laughs> some of the stuff that's, that's still 120 years later being written about her, um, it's hard not to see it in, in really gendered terms. Um, you know, one particular author gets really vulgar with it um, in an assessment of, like, heroism. And I, I thought that was, it, it just seems, and, and from my argument, it's that women don't hold a place in the polar regions in this concept. <clears throat> Sorry, excuse me. Um, in this... Uh, and this particular conception of, of male heroism and in the vision and like the the figure of the polar explorer. The Ronnies seem to have done their own um, erasure with Jenny Darlington and yes. <laughs> Karen, Karen Ronnie Tupac's website barely mentions her. I haven't read mm -hmm. uh, Jackie Ronnie's memoir. But the, the signage that they helped write for the huts at Stonington Island don't mention her at all. And it sort of becomes Jackie Ronnie was the first woman to overwinter. And yeah, I, <laughs> I did Jenny not Darlington's, <laughs> Jenny Darlington's memoir was a really good read for my money and does its bit to, to keep her in the picture. But... It's a personal it's it's definitely like like personal dispute that leads to this which is definitely par for the course and 
the Ronnies are are participating, you know, by these they by these same rules and a lot of the to be perfectly honest, I got like too wordy and the whole thing got too long and I 86 the Darlingtons for that reason. Um but I was wondering when somebody was going to ask about that. <laughs> I knew it was going to come up eventually. <laughs> uh, it's 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 got its Finn Ronnie. I think has a lot of Birdian qualities, um, mm-hmm. and I don't think Karen Ronnie Tupac would like to hear me say that. But he seems to be every bit as vindictive as Bird in wanting to see other people fail to his own benefit. And I know that he castigated Jenny Darlington's account for having a co-author, a ghostwriter, when his own accounts required ghost authors to bring his English up to speed. So everybody's oh. using ghostwriters the the every all of these folks are are using ghostwriters <laughs> and i uh, i i do see like i do see the that there are personality traits in common between bird and and ronnie for sure um i i i alluded to it i didn't go deep into it um and I guess part of it was that, like, I do feel a little sorry that he was so targeted by Bird, like, full disclosure. I I do feel a little sorry about it. Um, And nobody else had the same kind of, like, reach to get back at their enemies like Bird did. (laughs) I definitely definitely see Ronnie as getting the rough end of the pineapple, but I think he, (laughs) he he was quite capable of passing it downhill as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, and as far as I can tell, the only person that I can't find stories about them like that is Burnt Balkan. <laughs> uh, I, but- I, I think he was perhaps one of the one of the nicest people to have gone exploring, and I can still see areas of his persona that I, I, I mightn't gel with in the I'm quite a cranky bastard though so um, I'm very careful about who I place myself under these days I've I've had some bad experiences in Antarctica and on ships and again in Antarctica so getting very choosy about whose leadership I'll serve under and it's one of those sort of things I try not to run counterfactuals but I can't stop myself like how would I have acted in in Ronnie's shoes at Little America too. How would I have acted in Balkan's shoes as Bird was attacking? And uh... it's it's interesting to see. I feel like they had very like diametric, like diametrically opposite like responses to it. Yeah, like Balkan like is a lot more calm in his response. He he doesn't necessarily like respond to every single thing. Um then Ronnie like seemed to have had a little bit more of a temper about it. Um, right? And that's something Bird like says that he admits to all the time. He says it's part of being a Virginian, but like he had a temper. And it seems so did Ronnie. Um and then it's it's 
yeah, it struck me as strange that that really like burnt Balkans seemed to have had the hardest time of them all. Like with, the, I mean, when when somebody starts like <laughs> contacting the vice president and the publisher of the New York Times and Herbert Hoover and all of these people to say like i want your book destroyed before it's published <laughs> is oh my god <laughs> i can't imagine <laughs> and 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 yet i i don't think i saw anybody in the like accounts that i read like say anything as nice about anyone else as uh larry gould saying that if he were going on a two-man expedition anywhere in the world the only other person he'd take with him was Burnt Balkan. <laughs> and I, nobody else has no. anything nearly that nice said about them. <laughs> oh, in, in, Antarctic, in Antarctic annals, he is the most competent person I've ever read about. And yeah, Larry Gould absolutely nailed it with that. How did Bird's ambition for militant colonization in Antarctica transform in public perceptions to being the the sort of grandfather of the Antarctic Treaty, the the two don't the two don't have any common ground as far as I can tell. I I certainly don't see any there. Um, I I don't think you know, I don't think that anything that about like the outcome of the treaty is inevitable in any way or like you know sometimes people like to see this kind of like great progress like narrative of of here's how we used to do things and we are always gradually getting better. And, and up until like the last minute, the, the treaty could have just never happened. And, um, in no small part, like due to U S policy considerations that until he died, the Navy and, you know, the, NSC were referring to documents created by Byrd and like stuff that he had done as like the, as part of the research basis for their decision making. Um, and I think a lot of it has to do with this, this kind of core of, of Antarctic professionals that, that got put in place like through through their, their work on his expeditions. People like Gould, um, people like Paul Seipel, Harry Wexler, all of these folks that that really like led the charge during the IGY and and were were big leaders in like the NSF and stuff after Bird's death and in the era of the treaty, they wouldn't have been in such a position to like advocate or like endorse the treaty system if it hadn't been for Bird. And at the same time, they're also still weirdly protective of him, even after he dies and this more unpleasant stuff comes out. Like, uh, in the case of Balkan, like, after he dies, Larry, Larry Gould, like, writes this thing to the, uh, newsletter, to the Bird Antarctic Veterans newsletter, and saying, uh, right, shortly after Balkan dies, he writes in the newsletter, I have done good authority that, uh, Balkan spitefully disowned his children before he died and all of this stuff. It's really, it, it's uncharacteristically like nasty for Gould. 
and um, it kind of causes a little stir in their their newsletter and the people writing in and uh, Balkan's widow and his ex-wife <laughs> see this and the two of them these two women uh, work together like to craft this like, response to Larry Gould and they're like excuse me like he actually died super broke we didn't want to have to talk about this but he didn't disinherit his children there was actually nothing to inherit like how could you like say this about your friend like whatever and uh that's when larry gold writes back with the comment about if he were going anywhere with one other person he'd take balkan and he's like i'm so sorry that i like repeated that like it shouldn't have been included. I'd had it on good authority from somebody that I considered a friend, like, and it's, it kind of falls in line with this, like, you see other comments from people in this newsletter by, especially by the time you get to the seventies and they say like, oh yeah, well, he was, he was a jerk and, uh, a liar. And a lot of this stuff probably wasn't true, but I don't know that we're going to say anything about it. The bird that is like, you know, like, I don't know that it feels worth it to like dig it up. And I don't know if it feels worth it to, to push this. And it's, which astounds me because it's like, what about your other friend? <laughs> what about burn Balkan? You know? And, and it's, it, the, the honor, the honor cult, really like still works in Bird's favor even after he's died even after it's no longer involving just his family or just like Paul Seibel who almost functions like an adopted son like it's in this wider community and it plays back into these like notions from like Wyatt Brown and whatever about your honor and your reputation depend on like other people defending it and other people standing up for you and other people accepting the truth or like you know that your honor is like what you say it is and that's usually only afforded to people in like higher social classes and bird has that and um it, the truth really doesn't matter to these guys after a point like they know that he's lying they acknowledge that he's lying but this story works nicely. <laughs> That's kind of where they end on it. In our correspondence, we've discussed the role of danger in firing public imaginations, where competence tends to lead to a fairly flat narrative. Do you think... Or which way do you think the causal relationship lies? Did danger become a key element in the public appetite for ex the exploration narratives because that's what people want or do you think it became what they wanted because it's what they were fed that's a really good question and i've thought about this a lot since i saw your email and of course there's like you know michael robinson calls it shackleton syndrome where like people love the idea of, of danger they love the idea of a total disaster like the Franklin expedition, but more than anything, they love the thing that like almost ended like the worst that it could have, but like 
just barely didn't. <laughs> and, um, and, and Shackleton and like endurance, like fulfills those, those qualities that Robinson is talking about. And I think that that's, that's useful here. Um, because like technology works in Bert's favor is like the excitement for a while because like technology was the excitement. But I think it's almost like even Bird himself thought that he needed to like concoct more danger for it to like make himself seem more authentic, right? Because like the alone thing is so weird. <laughs> it's it's so weird. Um, it, it's it's such a bad idea, you know. <laughs> and and it's for for what? And and I think he he saw it as like he needed to add this this danger. He needed to say, well, like okay, we have this you know, whole little frontier town we built out here and I'm going to separate away from it and like go out on my own and do this like pseudo Walden thing, which I, I don't see as much Walden in it as other people do. But like, I, I think he wanted, he wanted to like create a situation even in which he might have, uh, Robert Scotted himself. <laughs> well, it's, I I've began questioning whether or not the carbon monoxide poisoning was real because man sits in box for six months isn't compelling where <laughs> man nearly dies in box because of faulty equipment and others have to come to come to the rescue even though he's not the hero of the hour in that narrative he managed to make that work for him in a way that not nearly dying of carbon monoxide poisoning wouldn't have done. And I definitely like see that like, and, and it like the, the weird insistence that he had that it wasn't carbon monoxide poisoning, that it was <laughs> that, that like he had like totally figured it out himself and that any insistence like otherwise was a, like, an attack on his honor again um i i almost think that like he was kind of okay with the carbon monoxide poisoning not that somebody undergoing that is going to be the most rational thinker but <laughs> i think he kind of he i think he was okay with the possibility that like his subordinates were going to find his body a few months later and and you know build him a, a fun memorial like like scott has <laughs> it's it's um i think i think he was willing to do that um i think it's telling that like when he thinks he's gonna die he starts quoting scott um like this is this is a big deal to him um I think, and Paul Seipel even kind of suggested in one of his letters to him around the time he's drafting alone, he's, he, he suggests, like, did you not take enough food on purpose? Like, were you trying to maybe starve to death out there? And he gets really, really, really upset. <laughs> and it, it's, it's a whole thing. Um, but I think it was kind of a suicide mission. And I, I think... I think he was to a degree hoping that that he might be the next Captain Scott. <laughs> the the contrast there 
for me is um, with Shackleton, I've, I've started questioning, like I grew up thinking Shackleton was the bee's knees. And in making this series, I've seen a lot of flaws in his mode and mean that make me think I probably wouldn't enjoy serving under his leadership. <laughs> and I don't want to be Roland Hunford to Shackleton the way Hunford sort of pierced the, the Scott bubble in the 70s. But um, I wonder if passing by Varsel Bay and deciding to push on into the Waddell Sea was not the moment that he realised, I am going to die, I don't want to, wouldn't it be better if we just spent a year in the Waddell Sea and popped out the other side? And it would take a lot of work to make that narrative compelling, but I think I've spotted my retirement project. <laughs> going, right? going, going to the lengths that you have in looking through the correspondence and the wealth of material that's available, I think that that would be a really interesting project. Perhaps not to go in with the, the conclusion already made. No, I yeah, it was, I wasn't really sure what I was gonna find about him. And I I, 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 I think I wrote this in my conclusion, like I felt sorry for Bert when I started this and I thought like, okay, well, you know, he's not Lindbergh. <laughs> and then that's a good thing, right? Like he's, <laughs> I, Charles Lindbergh is like, anybody who took a class with me is, knows that he's like my least favorite person. Like, and, and it say like, okay, well, you know, he's not into the eugenics and the Nazism and the whatever, whatever, but it, it's, there is something like, yeah, I think he's self-constructing like here because there's nothing, there's there's not really any there there, right? Like he, in the case of Lindbergh, like the 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 technical skill as a pilot is, uh, like, you know, according to a lot of people who knew him, like a once in a generation like ability, and and you have things like how he figures out how to extend the fuel like life of the p-38s to run bombing missions to wewak during the war and you have somebody like billy mitchell who's kind of a loon but he was as grotesque as it is he was right about aerial bombing in the context of world war ii like these people who have this real skill or expertise in what they're talking about bird doesn't really have that you know like he he's uh, according to the people like people like Balkan, he's not super great at piloting, <laughs> and um, all of this stuff is just kind of built on what he what he wants it to look like, versus like what it actually is. And um, and Shackleton, like you know, there's Frank Hurley, like smashed up the the altered photos that 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 made the story look less heroic. And and you have that going on there, even if it isn't as like huge and coordinated as maybe the editing process of the Scott Diaries. <laughs> but but I think it's I loved looking at these guys' correspondence, like all of these people's correspondence, because so much of what we assume is just based on the idea that 
Scott or Shackleton or whoever is telling us the truth. <laughs> like, um, and, and, you know, at the same time, a lot of historiography says, like, you know, why did this person, like, do the things that Scott or Shackleton says they did? Who says that they did? Like, we, we still operate under so many assumptions that what they're saying is true, even, like, in cases where we've already established that it isn't. Um, and, and I liked the idea that none of, it's, it's such a weird situation with Antarctica. There's no, in the case of so many other, like, imperialist uh, projects, you know, you can ask the indigenous peoples nearby you can ask like other observers you can there there are other people around who saw this and in the case of antarctica um you know you don't have anybody to look at other than these guys and the pretty homogenous group of people all things told like other than like class distinction like still like a bunch of white guys <laughs> and like there there's not going to be the same like outside of class there's not going to be really the same kind of of analysis that you're hoping to get from as a historian from like other sources it didn't turn up in the reading i did for my episodes about bird but your thesis records the death of an expedition carpenter following the winter at little america um do you think that that has been deliberately erased from the narratives or is it just a happenstance that that didn't go on the record as a death under Bird, under Bird's leadership. I mean, it feels like a pretty big deal to just like kind of have been glossed over entirely, right? So you have at the end of this expedition, like right before, like Bird comes back from the advance base, and uh, before they they end up returning back. Uh, to the U.S. via New Zealand, they, um, the drunkenness, like, you know, we've talked about it, it, it's, it's really out of control. Um, they're, they're making moonshine out of medication through a homemade still, and, um, it's a, it's, it's a really, like, sloppy environment, and then you have, then they get to New Zealand, and you have this carpenter, uh, drink and drink and drink and drink, uh, Ronnie says, and this is in an, it, this is in an unpublished manuscript written by Finn Ronnie about that expedition that I found in his daughter's, uh, papers. And it's, and the physician, the, the expedition physician doesn't notice, nobody notices, um, till he comes back on board and, or till the physician comes back on board and sees this guy, um, in a really bad state uh he calls for a hospital or for an ambulance and they take him to the hospital and he dies he's classified as dt um i've never heard about that anywhere else other than this ronnie manuscript and i can't find much else on it it's something that like you know given like a lot of time to dig into i or if i knew more about new zealand newspapers i'd love to try to see if I could find more on it because I also wonder if it's the same carpenter that in uh, Hannah Nielsen and Elizabeth Lean's article about the American cows brought to Antarctica they described that 
the carpenter was like visibly crying when he had to shoot one of the cows and it reminded me of the of the thing with Shackleton's carpenter and having to shoot a cat Mrs. Chippy um it, these guys like they're in this really extreme situation they're a lot of you know in the case of the carpenter there's substance abuse too and then you add a dead pet on top of it and really that's what the cows were like they didn't really need them there to produce milk or anything like um i wonder if it's the same carpenter that they're describing as you know crying while having to euthanize the cow um dies of alcohol poisoning on the ship in new zealand on the way home and none of these guys are being paid yet and the man didn't have insurance and uh a lot of you know if you if you die on one of these <laughs> expeditions you're kind of sol and um so they were they decided to auction off these dog sleds that Finn Ronnie had made uh, in the Antarctic to give money to the man's widow because Bird wasn't giving her any money. And then the dog sleds get lost when they get back to America, so then they can't do anything. And Ronnie says that the last he hears of it is that the woman uh, had been going to Bird's house in Boston all the time asking for the money, and he eventually cut her a check and like sent her away, and they never heard from her again. Um, was, what a, what an awful thing like um and and there's the cover-up i believe um there's a rather recent article uh from a historical geographer um about alcoholism in british expeditions and uh he talks about a similar incident being covered up on uh, in new zealand again on scott's team uh, a guy uh, fell from a really high point on the ship and, and he died and they they did a pretty good job covering it up and just just like his hero like seems like bird did a pretty good job <laughs> covering this one up too although i, I do want to know more <laughs> the incident with the british sailor falling from the masthead as the ship left port chalmers eventually led to Tom Crean joining the Discovery and the start of his um, Antarctic career. So it, it does Tom get Green. a bit of a mention in some of the narratives that I've read, but um, I'd love to get a hold of that article because alcohol has become a major talking point among current Antarctic expeditioners. Uh, the Australian bases have stopped um, homebrew, which was an initiative kicked off by Philip Law when the Australian bases opened, they would brew their own beer because that made it easier to transport. You didn't need to bring bottles of beer down in a crate. You needed to bring sugar and malt and let, let the locals deal with it. And it became a tradition and a hobby. And now that they're looking to curb the drinking on station, um, it's been banned. And that's caused a lot of ill will among the older crowd. And there's talk, and I don't know if it's coming from management or from, from the grassroots up first, but um, McMurdo Station has a really big booze problem in that people stationed there, uh, mostly the men, seem to revert to some sort of college dorm mode and drink themselves 
insensible as often as possible. And the, the booze allowance, while it has dropped in recent years, is still pretty excessive. So I'd actually like to write up an episode just about the history of alcoholism in Antarctica, because I think there's there's quite a lot to speak to there. And and the ingenuity of people getting around alcohol bans, um, <laughs> brewing up from fruit tingles as a base, or uh, what were they using at East Base? Um, Dr. Baxter's Lung Preserver. <laughs> <laughs> That's the one. Um, the name just like really works. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds so arcane and exactly what you would want if you were starting an illegal still to. Exactly, exactly. And they, they stashed it with the straight jackets, so, you know. <laughs> But okay. I think you're, see if you cut off the alcohol, like how many people are you going to have? Like, like I'd be, you know, like withdrawals or like, what is that going to do with the people that are, you know, the real like problem? <laughs> well, there are, there are precedents like ships can run dry. Yeah. You can, op- you can operate in a maritime context on a dry footing, but you, you start from that footing. You don't try and impose it halfway through a voyage. Yeah, <laughs> it, it doesn't work. require considerable change, but you've also you've, you're still facing that problem of in in the context of a scientific research station, a lot of smart people effectively you know prison, yeah, with a lot of resources, and they will <laughs> they will find, <laughs> find ways to brew. <laughs> uh, yeah, no matter how gross. <laughs> yeah. And it's interesting, right? Like, yeah, from all of the, like, everything you just said, and then there's the added, like, if you're never seeing the sunlight and, uh, you know, like, all of the weird changes to your circadian rhythm. And, um, yeah, see, I'm, I'm interested. Like, it's not something I have any expertise on myself, but I find it really interesting. <laughs> In your thesis... You mentioned Bird and the Australian explorer Mawson imposing limitations on their nation's Antarctic narratives. Can you expand on that topic for me, please? Yeah. Um, so in the case of Mawson, it's uh, something uh, that's been brought up by people like Elizabeth Lean, which is like one of my favorite. Y'all in Australia have some of the best writers about Antarctica. I really, really just have enjoyed that um and uh it's it's kind of the idea that it's it's such a narcissistic view of 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 like filtering like your 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 nation's antarctic ambitions through your own like image and at the same time like for moss and and bird like they're both playing this kind of like frontier role right it's um in the in the case of of Mawson, it's even a little closer, like looking to like like American, like old what you know, the, in in the. I feel like Australia has a lot in common with the United States in terms of like how they see like their their continental expansion and colonization and and frontier, and um, I think that's really interesting, like to extend to Bird and Mawson, <clears throat> and. Um, Mawson, I really think, doesn't have the same, like, 
Bird still like delegated enough that like he had people willing to like take the reins when he was done. And from what I've seen in the Australian historiography, it just doesn't look like Mawson had set anybody up except himself for success, really. And so he didn't have like, and it's definitely something Bird does, but just not to the same extent. Um, and because Mawson em em embodies this like kind of singular notion of of Australian history in the Antarctic, like it's different from kind of everyone else. Uh, it, it it kind of limits like who else is included in the picture, and it limits uh, kind of the ways that. In the case, well, and in the case of like the post-war, like state of scientific research in Australia, he he hadn't quite gotten enough people on board to to kind of do the rebuilding that you saw in some other places like the U.S. and to an extent like Argentina, um, and and Australia, like it seems like like went more into like mapping programs and stuff in the post-war era where bird had all of these folks like ready to go more or less like and they're they're pretty young like mawson mawson's not that different in age from bird although they feel like at least you know just reading like it was so shocking to me to see how close in age they were because mawson feels like a, a member of a totally different generation um and that's it could be me as as an American and not not being as as familiar with Mawson as a cultural figure, but um, I, you know, they they both kind of have this this image in a way that countries like like Britain like they have more than more than one like really big figure to lean on like in this like great man kind of history and like like Mawson and Bird are kind of it for the US and Australia at least like outside of, of specialists and um, Bird set up these guys to like protect his legacy people like Paul Seipel and whatever mm, I well, it seems like from what I've read and again I'm not a Mawson expert but it seems like most of his subordinates just we're not interested in doing that for him. Am I wrong about that? <laughs> no, I think he he led in a very aristocratic mode and a lot of his subordinates resented him as a leader. I think he was liked well enough that they didn't, like five people stayed on for a second winter in Antarctica just in case he, he came home and he did. You know, he was, he was respected as a human being, but as a leader, the scientists, particularly under him, I think, chafed. And in the voyages of the British Antarctic New Zealand, what was it? The British Australian New Zealand Antarctic Research Expeditions in 1928, um, that mode had, I think, strengthened and he alienated the people under him even more. And there was quite a bit of um, back channels, back chat about him um, as being a, a fuss pot. And <laughs> but yeah. there's there's this um, where he didn't come from a Virginian slaver family. His descendants will defend his legacy very vigorously. And when Tim Jarvis 
began investigating that, you know, perhaps Mawson ate Mertz. <laughs> um, they really... One of my favourite things to read about. <laughs> <laughs> they came out swinging and they, they really were upset that someone had questioned Douglas Mawson's legacy. Um, I don't know if that energy still carries or if just iced coffee flies enough under the radar that they haven't noticed that I haven't always been <laughs> super respectful of his legacy, but... Um, it's something I also, that I noticed... Oh, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. I, I didn't delve into the, the cannibalism aspect as much as Tim Jarvis did. I, I don't care if you eat someone to survive, so it's a bit of a non-starter for me. <laughs> I think the cannibalism thing is interesting in the way that, like, people reacted to it and the idea that like like dickens for instance hearing about like the franklin guys cannibalizing each other and like and no like people this like dignified would never eat each other <laughs> okay oh. <laughs> like you know and like the the idea that like um it's seen as like this like worst thing you can say about moss and and like whatever like I don't know. Um, maybe, maybe now that everybody's been watching Yellow Jackets, <laughs> differently. <laughs> well, poor John John Ray copped it in the neck because Lady Jane Franklin set Dickens on him, and it really must have hurt such a competent operator yeah. to to have their reputation dashed against the rocks by the pride yeah. of a nation to and have charles dickens attack you is gotta be <laughs> embarrassing <laughs> it's, it's gotta be it's gotta be pretty pretty dreadful <laughs> it's, it's not not what i'd want <laughs> and, and the, the admiralty joined in saying you know we've we've been in these situations and we never thought about eating our fellows and the response to that has got to be well you survived you know, <laughs> you didn't reach the point of hunger that these people did. Um, it's, and it's just so unfair. Yeah, and it's interesting to me that, like, the Mawson thing, like, yeah, like, he reacted, like, the fact that he never, like, I think if you'd seen people accusing Bird of cannibalism, I think you would have seen, like, an absolute meltdown. <laughs> In a way that, like, I don't have evidence of, like, Moss and, like, throwing a fit. Like, he, he's, he at least, like, responds to it, like, pretty, like, pretty calmly, and, like, he kind of doesn't acknowledge it, and um, it kind of goes back to all kinds of other things that I have a problem with about, like, the way that, like, Lloyd Spencer Davis wrote like Kathleen Scott like and and Mawson's affair saying that like Kathleen Scott bewitched him like all of this language that like this this man who's like legitimately does not feel like bothered by the idea that like people might be thinking he's a cannibal like he's somehow like totally incapable of controlling himself when it comes to Kathleen Scott or like you know that there's something like really like it's weird the ways in which like Mawson is given like the credit for like all of this like stoicism and willpower and then it's like oh but like man Kathleen Scott like just really knew how to get to him it's so like it really kind of reflects like these 
or I think that was, uh, sorry, that was David Day that said that. Maybe I shouldn't. <laughs> anyway, like it's, uh, the Mawson thing is interesting to me because like Day and Elizabeth Lean talk about like, even among like, they, they say that like, even among like left-leaning outlets in Australia, there's not really a lot of criticism you see of Mawson. And like, he still has this kind of like heroic sheen that, that I really think Bird doesn't. And I think some of that is, is Bird's family. Like, I'm sorry, but you can't have have your brother be like the biggest racist in the U.S. Senate and like expect your reputation to stay intact. Um, but yeah, I think they both like like kind of staked their claim on an on an outmoded model. But I think it works better for Australia in the sense that like the frontier stuff was still like newer as an element of national identity and. In the case of Bird, he's relying on tropes that, whether you want to consider it like a, a Frederick Jackson Turner like frontier like of the late 1800s, or if you want to consider it a William Bird, <laughs> you know, pre-Revolutionary War, uh, it, it's it's still they're they're relying on these kind of like outmoded uh, outmoded ideals or, or models for themselves. I feel like I got really far afield with that one. <laughs> no, that's awesome. Thank you for that. <laughs> and Dr. Seventy, thank you so much for your time and your generosity sharing these perspectives with Ice Coffee listeners. Thank you so much for having me on. I, I really enjoyed talking to you. I, I really appreciate it. Thank you. Dr. Seventy corrected herself on the fly, but I'd like to make it clear that Professor Lloyd Spencer Davis is the New Zealand-based penguin biologist who wrote A Polar Affair, and who spoke to Ice Coffee back in episode 110. David Day is the Melbourne-based historian who wrote Flaws in the Ice, a biography of Sir Douglas Mawson, which delves into Kathleen Scott's character and sexuality in a manner that does nothing to propel the arc of the narrative forward. I've added a link to the digital image collection of Oliver Austin's Operation Deep Freeze slides on this episode's notes at the Ice Coffee WordPress site. When Dr. Seventy first made this material available to me, it felt like Christmas. I love looking at the events and locations of Operation Deep Freeze associated with the icebreaker USS Glacier and seeing the experience through the eyes of an ornithologist. That perspective is emphasised by the picture of silver gulls in Christchurch. Growing up with these ubiquitous southern Australasian birds, they don't come on my radar as warranting much attention beyond shooing them away from my fish and chips, let alone for photography, let alone for photography in the chemical photography era. The pictures of Rear Admiral Byrd looking old, gloomy and irrelevant were icing on a cake made of awesome. I hope you enjoy Dr Austin's pictures as much as I did. Vision Australia talking book producer Robert DeGraw, mentioned in the coda to episode 1, recently brought a similar tranche of Antarctic images to my attention. The material, comprising a photo album, polar medal, and various sundry artefacts, belonged to Frank Hannon, an Ari meteorologist and officer in charge at Heard Island in 1951, and meteorologist at Mawson Station during the IGY, and offers another priceless window into the past. Robert had to return the material to Hannon's descendants after I enjoyed a brief perusal, but he kindly took pictures of the pictures so I can study them at my leisure. 
Robert DeGraw, still helping out Ice Coffee 12 years after he first auditioned me for talking book narrator duties and taught me how to studio and microphone. We're just on a month away from the 2023 Austral Winter Solstice, and I would like to engage in a worldwide communal viewing of the 1982 version of The Thing on that shortest day. John Carpenter's horror masterpiece captures the life of isolation and toasty paranoia life at a remote research station can induce even in the absence of a shape-shifting body-snatcher alien, and features as viewing fodder at many Antarctic stations, at some on midwinter's day and at others immediately after the last plane out takes off or the last ship throws lines and sails over the horizon. In this increasingly disparate era of human existence, I'd like to line up as near a simultaneous viewing of the film as possible. I'll be at sea at the time, but that doesn't make the initiative moot. Digital water coolers are as readily available as shipborne scuttlebutts, and we can gather to discuss the experience at any time after the 22nd of June. You've got a month from publication of this episode to source a copy of the movie and coordinate your viewing with others. If you can bring a group together in meat space, so much the better. Raspberry jelly served in petri dishes for the win in terms of snacks. Take care and appreciate your coffee, and furthermore I consider that Carthage must be destroyed and that Hadley Mearsham should be avoided at all costs.